Welcome to the Meb Favor Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome listeners to the podcast today. We are super excited to have all the way from the woods of Corvallis, Oregon, Ed Easterling. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Meb. Glad to be here today. So Ed's been a oft-requested uh, podcast guest. Ed, we actually just did a survey on my blog the other day and asked people, this is a question that Jeff and I have talked a lot about on the investment uh, podcast before, and we said, hey, if you could give someone just a single comprehensive investing book, uh, what would you give them? Because I don't really have a great answer for that. And so people sent in a thousand responses, which poor Jeff and I had to put together, sort in Excel, and just wanted to give you a pat on the back. One of your one of your books made the top 50 list. So for those who aren't familiar, Ed has been uh, written two great books, runs Crestmont Research, has been a professor, and uh, has some really incredible educational content on his website. You could spend many hours on there, many videos on there. I joked that uh, instead of doing this podcast, we could just start it, say, go watch Ed's videos and be done and spend the rest of time talking about who knows what. But it's good to have you on today. So, Ed, I figured we get started in an area that particularly I think you think a lot about, we talk a lot about, and that's the U.S. stock market, but also thinking about a framework for expectations. And, you know, your your most recent edition of your book, Probable Outcomes, is such a wonderful title because it, it goes along with the way we think about the future. So t- talk a little bit about, you know, you talk about... St- future stock market returns, and there's only three components of the way you see the future. Maybe talk a little bit about your framework as a, as a starting point and go from there. Absolutely. I think the framework is to first uh, keep in mind that the stock market is not, a, is not driven by, by randomness, but instead is, in the longer run, a very predictable uh, market. There are three theories that led to people expecting that the stock market is sort of this uh, random environment that you can't predict returns. And certainly we know that you can't predict returns over months, quarters, or even a year or two. What makes it different over the longer term is the, the fact that the stock market's driven by three components. And those three components are earnings growth, dividend yield, and the change in valuation level. So one way to think about it is it's capital gains and dividends. And capital gains are driven by earnings growth. And they're driven by the by the by the multiple. And if earnings are growing and the multiple is growing, you get super returns like we had in the eighties and nineties. When we're in environments where the earnings are growing but the multiple is declining, like we saw in the sixties and seventies, and like we've had happen over the past uh, eighteen years, uh, coming off of the late nineties bubble, you tend to have that earnings growth offset by the decline in multiple, and and it lowers your capital gains. To, to that, you can add dividends. So the key point here is that there are fundamental principles that drive the stock market. 
that stock market returns over the short run are unpredictable, but over the, or at least generally unpredictable, over the longer run are highly predictable. And the most significant factor that determines whether we're in an above average period or below average period is actually the starting level of valuation. So if I had to sort of sum up in an elevator ride to someone what, uh, what the Crestmont research approach and view of the market would be, it's that, uh, that it's driven by fundamental principles, not by randomness. And over the short run, it may be unpredictable, but over the long run, it's highly predictable. And the key driver is the starting level of valuation. So I think this is a great starting point. And we've talked a little bit about this. And I mean, people like John Bogle have been even writing about this for 30 plus years. And people are often surprised to hear that Bogle has written about this kind of very basic stock market formula and puts some numbers to context. If if you could go back to 1900, so for the past, whatever, 117 years, historically, we've had about a 9.6% return. 4.2% was, was dividend yield, broadly speaking, earnings growth around 4.7. And you had a slight bump from valuations increasing of 0.3%. And so that's been your historical return. Now, real because of inflation knocks that down to about six. But but in general, that's why people expect this historical roughly 10% return. If you think about the current environment, Ed, what is it saying right now? Is it saying we're going to get 10% or is it saying something maybe a little bit different? Well, let's see. So a couple of things. First is, uh, I think it's important to distinguish the difference between long-term returns at 117 years and relevant returns and investors' horizon of 10 or 20 years. And so I think the first thing to do is to recognize that those long-term series, for example, the one you mentioned that goes back to 1900, or the very famous series that comes from Roger Ibbotson, uh, which is the one that was published by Morningstar, now published by Duff and Phelps, in the, in the annual compendium yearbook. That series starts in 1926. The most important thing to recognize, and I think you began to kind of give us an insight there when you, when you outlined the returns from those three components. You see, when those series started, the first is that they uh, tipped those series started when P.E. ratio was lower than it is today. And over 117 years, or over a 90-year or 100-year period like in the Ibbotson series, 90-year period like the Ibbotson series, a significant change in P.E., in the case of the Ibbotson series, a doubling of P.E. from less than, from 10.2 to now over 20, the compounded effect over 100 years is relatively small. That's why it's less than 1% a year. And that's why academics and pundits often talk about that P.E. change has such a small effect on stock market returns over the long run. But for individual investors that have a 10- or 20-year horizon, which, by the way, may sound long to some, but in terms of, in, when we're talking about long-term returns, those are considered shorter-term periods, the change in P.E. can be much more significant, uh, often adding... 5, 7, 10% pitch points to returns. So the other thing that's significant is that when, that is this dividend yield component. So when you start with low valuations, the amount of dollars of dividends that you receive represent a low, a higher yield than when you pay a higher price. So you, you, if you pay 10 times earnings for a stock, that dividend on that price is going to have a certain yield, like the earnings yield. If you pay a high price for the stock, that dividend yield will be less. So in the case of the series that you mentioned at four point something percent and the 
Constant Series, which is over 4%, those were periods that started with high PEs, and therefore dividend yield is a much higher portion contributor to return. In today's environment, where the price-earnings ratio is over 20, actually at this point, normalized PE is near 30, dividend yield is 2% or less. So going forward, that component is going to be less than half of what it was in that historical return. Right, and which is where you find it today, which is we have a dividend yield about 2% in the U.S. Um, and so if you, and it's funny because most people listen to, to John Bogle and his, his message is always buy and hold indexing, which, you know, we think is totally fine. But the question I always have, because he just came out yesterday, I think it was a CFA conference, and he said he expected U.S. stocks to do 4%. You know, which was this 2% dividend yield will give the stock market the historical earnings yield 4.7. So that gets you up to mid sixes, but then he lops off some for the high valuations and gets you back down to the 4%. So I'm always kind of curious. Um, I would love to ask him, I'd say, is there some valuation to where you would say it no longer makes sense to invest in stocks at all? Because, um, and we'll get into this a little bit about drawdowns and everything else. So I, I just think this is such an interesting, um, b- b- and I wanted to interject, but didn't want to interrupt you. When we talk about PE ratios, a lot of people um, there's like 50 different variants. Uh, do you have a favorite or like, is there one that is kind of, you know, I've seen mentioned the Crestmont PE. Is there one that you think is, is kind of your pet PE ratio uh, type? So I would say there's two. The first is uh, I like Schiller's Cape PE, PE10. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's well understood, well recognized and, and readily available and easily computable. At the same time, I also, uh, you'll find a number of the charts at CrestmontResearch.com are based on the Crestmont PE, uh, which is driven by a long-term uh, relationship regression between GDP and earnings per share. Uh, what you'll find both in unexpected returns and in probable outcomes is that I do a lot of comparing, especially in probable outcomes, of the Schiller approach to the Crestmont approach. And it's not to say that one is better than the other, but instead is to say that both of them have very similar results, but come at normalizing PE from very different approaches. So the fact that you have two different approaches and have very similar results, I think gives both of them credibility, as opposed to saying that one is is better than another. Much like looking at, at the GDP deflator and CPI. Because people often criticize CPI for, for shortcomings, but I think when you compare that the, that the uh, uh, GDP deflator, which is another measure of inflation, uh, comes up with very similar results but takes a completely different approach, there's a certain amount of validation that I think takes place when you, when you have that uh, comparison. Yeah, and I think that's the way we talk about valuations is we say they're often a blunt tool, but in general, the vast majority of your valuation indicators should agree typically – particularly when you're in extremes. So when you have a market that's expensive like the U.S., any valuation indicator you look at, and it doesn't matter what it is, and this is a great example right now, you can't find one that that says stocks are screamingly cheap or even cheap at all. Almost all of them, whether it's median earnings, whether it's market cap to GDP, whether it's P ratio, all of them say there's some degree of overvaluation. So I wanted to um, touch on kind of under this topic of valuations and how they have such a massive impact on future returns. You talk a lot about um, secular bull and bear markets as well as cyclical bull and bear markets. And you have a pretty interesting comment. And I'll see if you this is still of your belief and let you talk about it. And so some listeners might be surprised to, to know that 
despite this big run up since the global financial crisis, um, you've commented in the past that we could still be in a secular bear market. So maybe talk a little bit about the long time frame and secular and cyclical and all that good stuff. Absolutely. And obviously when we talk about secular stock market cycles, we're talking about in secular, that comes from the Latin term secula, which means an era or extended period. So what we're talking about is just long-term periods of bulls and bears, which is different than a cyclical period, which would be a year or two or three or four or five. And I would contend that we are definitely in a secular bear market. There's a chance that we're in what I would term a, a bear in hibernation. That's where valuations stay high for an extended period. You get below average returns, but you don't see the decline in valuation that is, uh, in, that's representative, indicative of a secular bear market. A secular bear market is an extended period of time where valuations are generally declining. That general decline offsets some of that earnings growth, gives you below average returns. Secular bull markets are the opposite. They're a generally rising period of valuations. Valuations tend to rise and fall over time uh, because they're driven by the inflation rate. When we have periods of low and stable inflation, drives high valuation levels. When you have periods of bad inflation, which is either high inflation or deflation, uh, that drives low valuations, and it does it for a series of financial trade-offs. When you're moving from bad to good, that creates a secular bull market because you see uh, inflation coming back to low stable levels, and you see valuations rising. You mentioned the current condition. The current condition is that we have high valuations, but they're high for a reason. They're high because inflation has been low and stable for an extended period. And that justifies and supports and drives valuation higher. Now, it turns out that valuations in the past, oh, six months or so, almost a year, have moved kind of beyond the, the natural level for low inflation into an extended kind of overvalued high level. Uh, but it's only 10 or 20% overvalued. It's not dramatically overvalued in the context of a low inflation, low interest rate environment. There's some great charts we'll post to the show notes about secular bull and bear markets, and it compares what would consider to be this this secular bear, which Ed has starting in 2000. You know, and, and the CAPE ratio, if you guys remember, you know, the highest it ever experienced in the U.S. at a, at a value of uh, 45-ish, and comparing kind of the other big bears, so the the one after the Roaring Twenties, and another one um, near the end of the 30s, uh, the 1966, which lasted 16 years, and the longest in this chart was 1901 to 1920, which lasted 20. And it's really cool to see the the valuation where these started and how long they took to get. And what, what do you see as kind of the the zone for really a, a bear to end for PE ratios? Is it below a certain level? Is there, is there kind of a range? What, uh, what, do you, what do you think? Well, I think let's, so let's keep in mind. So we have our, so at the end of the day, there's, um, let me offer kind of a, a statistic to kind of get us started on this. If you go back to 1900 and you look at every 10-year period, and I think a lot of people continue to consider 10 years to be a reasonably long environment that it's relevant to an investor, uh, but, but short enough that we can um, kind of do some assessments. And by the way, since 1900, there have been over 100 of these 10-year periods, 1900 to 09, 1901 to 1910, 1902 to 11, et cetera. If you look at the total return from stocks, so that's capital gains plus dividends, for all of those 10-year periods, the average is 10%. 
but what percent of the time was were the 10-year periods average? How many of those past 110 10-year periods have been not exactly 10% because we know none of them were exactly 10.00, but let's use a range for average for discussion. Let's extend it all the way out to 8 to 12. So if it's between 8 and 12%, it's considered average. If it's above 12, it's above average, and if it's below 8, it's below average. Most people are surprised to find out that only 20% of the years, 20% of the decade periods, fall between 8 and 12%. So the odds-on bet is that returns for any given decade are going to be above 12 or below 8. In that above 12 group, which is about 36% of the time, those are periods that are associated with increasing valuations, where PE expands, and then conversely the ones below 8 are where PE contracts. So where do we stand today? With PE high, almost no one is expecting that valuations are going to increase from here. And even the even some of the the, uh, the, the often bullish folks, like you just mentioned, see a slight contraction in PE from here. So we know we're not set for a secular bull. How low does it have to get? Well, it has to get to the point where PE can double or triple. So if anything, I think we're starting out in the high 20s right now, PE would have to get down, gosh, at least to the mid-teens, if not the, the low teens, to then have a chance to double. Because if you don't get a doubling of PE over a 10-year period, you can't get enough extra oomph to get you from below average to above average. To be clear, listeners, like Ed's not necessarily saying the stock market has to drop 50% tomorrow. But this could mean that there is a very elongated period of very low returns. And I think a, a classic example would certainly be something like Japan, where, you know, it's, it had this massive bubble, but there's plenty of other expensive markets over the past 10 years. Think about China, Colombia, Mexico, India. They got very expensive. And they did work out their valuation by very large bear markets or price crashes. But you could also have a sort of just terrible muddling long situation of zero or low single digit returns or even slightly negative returns for a long period. But that's usually what gets to the washout stage. And it's funny, Ed, because we've seen a couple surveys and I actually just posted one on Twitter, which we'll read here in a minute that show expectations for investors of around 10% for U.S. stocks or actually 10.5%. And, and we kind of demonstrated with your equation and, and you know said, look, if you plug in the numbers today and assume historical earnings growth, stocks have to, the PE multiple has to rise to the highest it's ever been in history just to hit expectations. So, you know, the biggest problem with investors, of course, is, is you know, they're, they're kind of living in fantasy world. It's hard for people just like losing weight or anything else to, to kind of take their medicine. Right. And, and actually, that, that what, you, what you just described right there, Matt, I consider, I call the reconciliation principle. Matter of fact, if anything, I think this is one of the key things for an investor or an advisor to kind of put in their toolbox. So when you hear a pundit say, gosh, we're expecting returns over the next decade of 10%, the first question should be, just as you described a second ago, well, what are the component parts? Let's re reconcile that back to the three parts. And I think there's a tendency for people to, to again, think in terms of because we've been taught that the, the only return that you can get is from market returns. And so modern portfolio theory taught us to diversify portfolios to get rid of company risk and just take market risk. And then Fama taught us that markets are efficient. Now, they're actually an efficiency process, not an efficient event, but nonetheless. And then Malkiel wrote the random walk down Wall Street. So people have been walking around for decades 
thinking that, well, stock market returns are random. You can't predict it. When in reality, because of those three fundamental components, they are predictable. So I think to get to the 10%, just like you described, you got two points for dividends. You know, you, the question is, if an earnings growth has to be, generally is very close to economic growth over the long run, and in an environment where we have relatively low economic growth and inflation, that means that the nominal growth in earnings is going to be below average. That requires that third component, just like you described, that requires PE move up to go 50% from here to, 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 to add that extra oomph. It's it's a simple answer is that I just watched the sci-fi movie Moon, which I'd never heard of, which uh, listeners is basically the the concept where um, we have found unlimited energy source on the moon. So I think if Elon Musk finds unlimited energy on the moon, maybe we'll get 10% returns, but otherwise um, it's going to be tough. You actually have another interesting chart and I'm skipping ahead because I did love your comment on average rarely happens. I think that's a really interesting discussion because most investors think, hey, 5-10% returns, that's going to be likely. But in reality, normal stock market returns are extreme. So you have these huge outliers both to the upside and downside. And, and part of that volatility uh, you mentioned is what you call volatility gremlins. And we've mentioned this before in the past, but could you, could you explain what... Um, what that, what that means to investors? What, what do you mean by volatility gremlins? Sure. There are two volatility gremlins that have a significant impact on uh, compromising the compounded returns that, that investors receive. Uh, the first of those volatility gremlins is the effect of losses. I think the best way to demonstrate that is a, a, let's assume that one year you have a 24% return and the next year you have a 20% loss. So obviously, if you for that two-year period, up 24, down 20, well, that's 4% divided by 2. That's 2% simple return per year. But in reality, if you run a portfolio through that equation, where it goes up 24 and then down 20, you'll actually end up almost down 1%. So the, uh, because of the effect of, of negative numbers on compounding, the effect of losses. And that effect has, is, is greater as you increase the amount of loss. So we know that if you lose 10%, you have to make 11 to make it up. If you lose 20%, it takes 25% to make it up. And as investors in the NASDAQ know from the late 90s, if you lose 80%, it takes 400% to make it up. So the point is that Warren Buffett said the first rule of investing is don't lose money, and the second rule is to not forget the first rule. The reason is because losses have such a disproportionate effect, and that's, one, that's the first volatility gremlin. The, the second volatility gremlin is the, is the dispersion of return. Basically, if you get the same level of return every year, let's assume that you get 15%, 15%, 15%, just to use an extreme number, you get the best compounding if you instead have dispersion in returns. So one year it's 5, one year it's 15, one year it's 25, and it doesn't matter the order that would actually give you less compounded return than if it's an even 50 each year. The reason that's important is there's a perception that you need to take more risk to get more return and that volatility is good. But in reality, the impact of losses and the, variable, and the effect of the variability of returns on compounding, those operate together to, uh, to work against investors converting simple returns into compounded returns, the ones that count. 
why I often say that this is an example of where the, the, the tortoise gets an edge over the hare on this race. And this is an example of where you don't have to have more pain to get more gain. That in many cases, although it's psychologically desirable to be, it is psychologically desirable to have smoother returns and have fewer losses, it's also better for compounding. Which is contrary, which is contrary to the notion that risk is this knob that you turn up to get better returns. That's a great point. And, and thinking about, you know, all tying this back to valuations, we've done this and we've seen a lot of others do this, where you show that high valuations, not just in the U.S., but globally, um, if you can stair-step up valuations, the starting point is that the higher the valuation, the, the larger your future drawdown will be at whatever time frame, three to 10 years, meaning that if you're buying stocks at PE of 30, you have a higher chance of a big fat loss than if you bought them at say 10. And this goes back to the classic margin of safety or, you know, that's been around for a hundred years that, and it doesn't even just apply to stocks, it applies to anything. You buy a car or a house, a baseball card that's, you know, has really high tether to cash flows or high, high multiple to cash flows. Chances are probably the, the, the odds are not in your favor. So what's an investor to do? So we, we, we've been talking a lot about stocks you know, and as as one thinks about building their portfolio, is it people just take their medicine, get four percent returns, and move on, or, or how do you think about building a portfolio? How what 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 are the steps? You talk a little bit about rowing and sailing um, in your book and videos. Could you could you maybe go down that uh that thread? Certainly, and and as we go into the discussion of rowing and sailing, let me just take a moment to say that that uh, I know one could could listen to this conversation, could read some of the stuff, look at the charts on Crestmont Research, and get the impression that I'm bearish or negative about the market. And let me say it's actually not the case. This is really about assessing the market environment. And then when we talk about the level of returns, the forecast at this level of valuation is for returns of somewhere in the, oh, 5% range. And that's about half of the historical average from stocks. And that sounds low. But keep in mind that that's actually pretty reasonable in a historic context. Earlier in our discussion, you talked about how the, you bake it all down, that 10% return turns into about 6% real, right? And that includes a dividend rate that's over 4%. So since we're starting at higher valuations, we need to kind of adjust that down by a couple of points. So in an environment historically that starts at a high valuation, 4% real is right in line with history. And if you're in a low inflation environment like we are today with 1% to 2% inflation, you add that to the 4, you get nominal returns close to 5. So keep in mind, I'm not talking about a really negative scenario. What we're talking about is an environment that we start with low uh, inflation, low interest rates, and therefore stocks are naturally priced for lower returns. So the reason that's really important is two things. The first, if you go in with real, if you, one, it's, I think there's a tendency to think if you under, if one understands, looks at the environment and says, gosh, it sounds like the market is priced for 5% and that that's a reasonable expectation, then it becomes empowering. It empowers an investor to understand that they're, that they're not at the – that the environment isn't controlling them. They're essentially in control of their portfolios within that environment. That lets you then pick the appropriate strategy. And so I want to use that as a segue into rowing versus sailing. Chapter 10 of Unexpected Returns, I titled Row, Not Sail. And what you'd find is, and I think that I talk about, I'm a 
climatologist. I talk about what drives the market over, over the long term. And then investment philosophy. But that's as far as I go. So I'm not one that analyzes securities or industries or individual uh, investment strategies, but instead investment philosophy. Rowing is the boatsman's analogy that says that there are periods of time, like the current environment, where returns are relatively low. You can't count to have to be the wind at your back, and so you've got to pull out the oars and row. And that means a more diversified, actively managed portfolio. Sailing, in contrast, is the more passive approach. It says the market winds are at your back, so just open the sail up, and like the 80s and 90s, enjoy the ride. Um, but we're not set for that today. We're set for rowing. When we row, that gives us the chance to look internationally, look across different investment alternatives. But the most empowering part of recognizing that the environment is currently priced for 5% returns is that a lot of other alternatives that people wouldn't look at if you thought you were lowering the return of your portfolio by putting in a 5 or 6% REIT or master limited partnership or a commodity fund or otherwise, because if you're putting in 5 and 6 and 7% return investments, you're taking away or you think you're taking away from that 10% bucket in stocks, that looks like you're compromising your returns. But if instead you recognize we're in an environment where stocks are priced for 5%, they're not priced for 10 and that that the market is this barbell of returns, so below average and above average, it's not the bell-shaped curve that assures you that if you wait long enough, you'll get back to the middle. That empowers you to start including those other things in a portfolio, and not only are you actually increasing return in many cases, you're lowering risk, because with the additional diversification, you reduce some of that volatility, and so essentially you're empowering your portfolio to take advantage of, uh, to, to uh, immunize against those two volatility gremlins. And you also mentioned the, the, the effect of rebalancing, you know, where you want to um, come back to target more in this sort of environment, rather than just kind of the trend following environment of a, of a PE expansion. I'm just kind of curious as I think about this is I, I wonder what the eventual trigger is from this kind of, you know, mellow period of one to three percent inflation or, or whatnot. Cause we've shown this as well as you have as, as others where you have this sort of inflationary mount PE mountaintop where we're in sort of like the candy land perfect environment. And so what's the trigger for, uh, you know, things getting a lot worse? Is it, you know, uh, sort of an inflationary deflationary? I know you talk about the 650 rule, or is it something like a recession, which we haven't seen in a really long time in the U.S.? Any any thoughts there, or is it sort of a, a kind of who knows kind of kind of question? Well, well, let's see. The first I would say is that, that, that uh, and, and when I go out and talk to folks and, and make presentations, I usually survey the audience to try to get a sense on whether people today are expecting low stable inflation, deflation, or inflation. And hands down, two-thirds to three-quarters expect higher inflation. So I think that is a reasonable scenario to make sure you, that, that someone bakes into their thinking. Deflation is a possibility. Uh, lots of things could trigger it, but that's a, that seems to be the lower probability. Not many see 10 years of low stable inflation. So with that in mind, what could trigger it? Boy, I, I guess there are lots of things that could, with the, all the liquidity that's been put in the system in the last eight years, if that's not properly managed and, and removed, uh, you mentioned recession. You know, we just passed in March. March represented the, uh, uh, this particular expansion that we're in became the third longest in history as of March of this year. And next May, if it makes it that long, it will become the second longest in history. The 
following July, July of 19, if it gets there, it will become the longest expansion in history. And the following January, January of 2020, if we get there, we will have exited the 2010s without a recession. And, that's, and we've never had a decade, a calendar decade, that didn't have at least one recession, going back to 1850. As a matter of fact, in, since the 1930s, every decade has had one or two, and two-thirds of the time it was two recessions, not one. So only having one recession in a decade is, is an oddball. If we get zero, it's, so if we make it all the way to, I'm not predicting a recession, I'm just saying, if we do make it to January of 2020, which is not too far away, this will be the first time in 150, in uh, whatever that is, 150 years, not 150 years, I'm sorry, actually it is 150 years, that we, that we didn't have a recession during a decade. So now, a, could, could a, would, would a recession trigger? I'm not sure if a recession triggers deflation or inflation, but certainly the policy responses that might happen with that trigger the potential for an inflationary response, especially with the Fed right now not having many, not having many tools in their toolbox to, to use. They've, they've extended out quite a bit. It's kind of fun to watch because, you know, if you were to tell people, if you, if you simply said, you know, if you could, like, men in black erase people's memory from the past year of what markets have done and just describe the political climate of what's gone on over the past year in the U.S., but also abroad, is that, you know, no one in their right mind would probably say we have one of the least volatile stock markets in the U.S. in history you know, most people would assume that things would be going haywire and crazy, which, you know, there's a good lesson in there that, that it's hard to extrapolate geopolitical events to market returns. And in many ways, the market is sort of forecasting, you know, the economy in many ways. And so it's going to be really interesting to watch, you know, how this uh, transpires, because for many people, and if you look back in history, a lot of the events that uh, play out in markets are very obvious in retrospect. But, you know, in, in, in many cases, they're hard to forecast. Do you have any sense, you know, from being a publisher and, and having a lot of interaction with readers, what, do you have any sense on sentiment? And does that play any way into kind of your thoughts and calculations, uh, you know, or, or forecasting at all? Uh, and is it any comments on kind of any pulse on what, what the sentiment today feels like? Sure. And, and, and I... I... I tend to think in terms of, uh, again, I, I think it's very difficult. There are some people who are able to uh, to get a pretty good record at forecasting shorter-term trends, maybe doing it technically or otherwise. Uh, again, I'm a market climatologist, so uh, when we start talking about any, you know, the short-term and and maybe near-term predictions, that's, that's certainly outside the scope of what I would typically do. But I, I do look at a dashboard. And the dashboard includes things like are valuations high versus low, and are the how high are they? Because it create it's basically an insight into the vulnerability. You mentioned volatility. Volatility is a reflection of the movement of the markets, which also tends to to reflect investor sentiment and complacency toward risk. We are today by and I'll give two measures of volatility. The first is the uh, a statistical measure of, of volatility, the standard deviation of the stock market on a rolling basis. And right now we're well into the lowest 3-4% of all periods since 1950. So that means that complacency is relatively high. Markets are really calm right now. The other measure is the VIX. It's starting to settle back down. It's It's got a 10 handle again. 
just recently, a couple of weeks ago, we actually broke 10 and spent a couple of days down below 10. If the history of the VIX goes back to 1990, which is that volatility index measure, and we've only had 11 days since 1990, over almost 7,000 days, only 11 of them had VIX below 10. And, and here we are getting ready to flirt with it again, and we did have two days this year where we went below 10. That's an indication of a high level of vulnerability. It doesn't mean it's that we're, that we're set to have a decline. It's not a prediction of a decline for the market. It just means that we're very vulnerable to conditions that, uh, that can naturally occur, and that could set up for a correction. The other is that we have corrections. We haven't had a correction in, in you know, quite a long time, and those are usually healthy for a market. When you don't have them, I think when you don't have recessions, when you don't have corrections, people just get a sense that maybe things are back to, quote-unquote, normal, and they're stable and just ready to, to cruise along. In reality, that's, that normal is actually volatile. Normal is not mellow. We, we think a lot about a lot of many of these topics, and you know, you talked a little bit about, we've been talking a lot about, uh, about people starting out and investors that are just learning about markets and starting to put together portfolios. But, but I think it broadly applies to investors in general as well. And so if you were to talk to someone who's kind of just starting out and investing, you know, what would be the, the kind of main pillar that you would you would suggest to them if they want to get educated and practically start to get together a portfolio so like what do you tell people in like building a portfolio given the current environment what sort of advice or where, where do you sort of nudge them and and start to make suggestions on uh how to how to go about it and an answer a totally reasonable answer is just go watch my videos on crestmont research because listeners ed's got a lot of great videos in about 200 charts and publications, including one of my favorites was um, the executive summary, which is Crestmont's research, putting it all together that has about a dozen bullet points with hyperlinks, which is a great way to spend a lazy afternoon if you uh, if you want to learn some. But but where else would you point people or what would you tell them as sort of the foundation on on kind of getting started? So I think the first thing I would do is suggest and when I this and when I taught an investments course as an adjunct uh, a number of years ago. The one thing about the, the, the students, it was an advanced course, and so a lot of students coming in had already had the basic finance courses. And it, it took us the first part of the class, first part of the course, to get people to uh, unwind a bit of their thinking. And so I think what I would suggest to a young person is to try to inoculate them to the notion that the stock market is random. So I think the, the first would be to, to try to get them to, to, to be skeptical of conventional wisdom, and to read a variety of pieces and look for the fundamental drivers of the market, look for the fundamental understanding of what drives the market, and to, re- and to reject some of the – to make sure that they apply, it, to the extent they're exposed to tools or apply tools that are readily used in the industry, is to, is to think about the way they're applying them. So, for example, if a person applies modern portfolio theory and uh, Monte Carlo simulations, which is very common in the industry – Monte Carlo is a great technique. It's just uh, too often, which is a Monte Carlo is this, is where they take history and create a whole bunch of different random scenarios, so that you have millions of scenarios that you then can statistically profile and come up with a prediction on the outcome of the future. And that's a great idea. And just like modern portfolio theory is a great approach, but Markowitz led off that paper saying the first phase is to start with relevant assumptions. 
And the second phase is about his approach. But the first one, which is my model, so basically he said, my model is only as good as your assumptions. So to that I would offer that if you're going to Chicago and you call me up and you say, what clothing should I wear? And I spent some time in Chicago. I would say, well, gosh, on average it's 65 degrees there. So just dress accordingly. But anybody who's been to Chicago knows that it's typically 90 or 30. It's not typically 60. So if you're going to run a scenario, the first question I should ask is not, uh, the first answer I should give is not, where for 65, where for the average, it should be when are you going, and let's look at the relevant weather for the, for the periods that you go there. So let's run Monte Carlo for your trip, either using winter days or summer days, not using every day of the year. When we apply that to the stock market, it would be for somebody today that's running a Monte Carlo simulation on future returns, look at history and look at the periods that had above average valuations. And look at the outcomes that came from those periods, not just look at every period. So I think it's so. I guess that was an illustration, an example of going in and just thinking about what what a young person is is how they're applying the tools, and also be a little skeptical of conventional wisdom. So when when you were teaching classes at SMU um, and MBA, what what was kind of like the the biggest mistake or misconception a lot of the students came to the class with? Was was there something that you kind of heard over and over because? There's some that we get on the podcast and email that just kind of it's like nails on a chalkboard. Is there anything in particular that stands out? The, the, the one that the one that stands out the most is uh, that risk drives return, and that uh, that the way that you increase the return from a portfolio is to increase its risk. I'll never forget. It's, as you know, I did some research and and some work in the hedge fund industry when I first went to teach the course at SMU. And again, this goes back to the early 2000s. The uh, head of the finance department uh, said, you know, just before you get started on this, you probably should go talk to some of the other professors. Just let them know what you're going to teach, just so that they you know, know what to expect. So I remember talking to one of the other professors that teaches traditional finance. And so this is going to be a course about alternative investments. It's going to include some discussion about hedge funds. It's going to, you know, we're going to have hedge fund managers come to the course and talk about things. They said, hedge funds, those are the higher risk, higher return strategies, right? And I said, well, not exactly. They, they, they tend to apply skill to portfolios and generate higher returns with lower risk. And they said, well, how do they do that? Because returns are driven by risk. So I think we've always been, the, the conventional wisdom is that risk drives return. It turns out that that's a process. When you take higher risks, because of the lower probability of success, those who do get success get higher returns. But it isn't necessarily that higher risk drives higher return. And that's why when I contributed to John Malden's book, uh, about 12, investors, uh, 12 Things Investors Need to Know, my chapter was risk is not a knob. That investors need to realize that, and I think that's the one that kind of came out immediately when you start talking about the fact that there are ways to invest the modern portfolio theory way, which is to eliminate individual security risk, and to just take, to eliminate individual security risk and just take market risk. In that situation, your returns are strictly driven by the market, and therefore they're driven by the risk of the market. In the case of investors that actually pick individual securities, uh, allocate the various strategies that, that use skill to generate returns, they can often generate returns without taking additional risk, but by doing it by, by being uh, better at their investment approach or their investment security selection. In Conventional wisdom, skill, because of the efficient markets hypothesis, Eugene Fama's theory that from the 1970s, that markets are efficient, that eliminated the notion 
for many, that skill could provide extra return. Because the, how, can you, how can you beat the market with skill if the market's efficient? So I think it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's the outgrowth of those three different theories that led to a conventional wisdom that you often have to overcome before you can begin to see this fundamental driver to the market and the chance to diversify portfolios and use uh, alternative types of investments and international investments to create returns. The listeners out there who aren't familiar, I mean, this historical concept of risk equating with return, I mean, even with the basics of beta and stocks and volatility, it turns out that in many ways risk did predict return, but it was exactly opposite. So it was that low volatility stocks did better than the, it was correct. Just the sign was wrong. It was backwards. And then one of my favorite quotes on this is an active manager who runs white box funds, which I think is out of Minnesota, somewhere in the upper Midwest and is Redleaf, I think is his name, but they, uh, you know, he, he's a great quote where he's like, look, my job is to minimize as many risks as possible in the sense of uh, I'm trying to minimize drawdown, minimize the possibility that that this entire portfolio will be, you know, kind of quote risky. So as you think about, you know, you mentioned hedge funds and kind of some alternatives a few times. Are there any favorite styles or, or strategies that you gravitate to? And, and for investors that are listening, you know, it's, it's kind of this limitless world of choice. It's sort of like going on Netflix and being like, you know, I'm, I'm going to go pick out a movie. Do you have any suggestions for kind of people looking to allocate to that world? Uh, or is it kind of, you know, Hey, you, you gotta, it's a, it's a kind of full-time 24 seven career to pick these guys. What's, what sort of any general thoughts on, uh, the active and hedge fund space? So as I mentioned, I, I really don't, uh, uh, research, analyze, or, or, uh, uh, write about individual securities funds, uh, or in even, even, uh, uh, specific strategies or styles. What I would offer here though, that I think is probably relevant to investors process of selecting those things is one, recognize that there are lots of choices. And it does take lots of research to do that. In this environment where returns are so low, adding an incremental 100 or 200 or 300 basis points can be very significant to, to, to future compounded returns. If that comes at a, and so in this environment, it can be worthwhile to pay a little more to find people who have that expertise. Uh, because if you can add that extra 100 or 200 basis points, even though it may cost you 100 or 200 basis points, it can be very, very rewarding. The other thing I would offer is when we talk about diversification, most people think about just having more stuff in the portfolio. And I think the important thing is if you're in this environment, uh, the market, stock market's relatively highly valued. You're probably allocating some of that stock market allocation to alternatives, but still keeping a significant stock market exposure. Recognize that the most significant risk to the stock market today would be a rise in inflation a rise in inflation that would also drive up interest rates and would cause valuations to decline would give us not just our 4 or 5% return, but it could give us a zero return over a 5 or 10-year period. So if inflation is a significant risk to a significant portion of the portfolio, the stock allocation, if, if you found two alternatives that were equally good, but one of them was, was a hedge on inflation and the other was vulnerable to inflation, there's great value in adding the one in that would be a hedge to inflation. So at least you have some zig to offset your zag if we go into that higher inflation environment that a lot of people expect. So look at the under, look, look at the looking at the risk across the portfolio, not necessarily just looking at the at the at the at the, uh, at the variety across the portfolio. 
And uh, there's a lot of asset class. I mean, commodities is one that has been particularly hated over the past few years as commodities in general have, have done very poorly. Incredibly popular asset class in the mid-2000s, but one that has really struggled that historically has had a pretty pretty decent correlation to, to rising inflation. I, don't, I would love to keep you for many hours today, but we're, we're going to start to wind down and, and just ask a few more questions. You know, we have a lot of investors on the podcast that are that are kind of late career, you know, maybe retirees that are focusing on income. Does any of your advice differ for them? Because they have an opportunity set where U.S. stocks, you know, like you mentioned, low single digits, U.S. bonds, 2%. It, any particular advice uh, to that cohort? Or is it just kind of same advice, differently applied? You know, for that group, I would actually provide, I, I would emphasize some of the things we've talked about. You know, one thing about that young person that we talked about earlier is that they're in an accumulation phase. And so they're constantly adding new dollars into the portfolio. So if we have dips in markets, et cetera, their new investments can be reinvested at lower valuations or rebal- or be used to rebalance a portfolio. Um, for an older investor that's going to begin to harvest that portfolio or live off, off the income from that portfolio, they're particularly vulnerable to early declines, and they're particularly in need of more current cash flow. So I would say some of the things we talked about, about because right now the, 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 uh, the opportunity is with some of those alternative investments are to pick things that have a, have a more current yield that can provide that income and provide that balance against any if we do have some vulnerability to the stock market in the near term, uh, any drawdowns that might occur there. So one or two more, and then we're going to have to let you go. This is one we've asked everyone in 2017. Thinking back over your personal history, what is the most memorable trade of your own or investment, good or bad, uh, that comes to mind? Oh, that, <laughs> well, you know, I think the one thing that makes that hard to, to answer is is that I tend not to do a lot of individual. I, I, uh, I in the past I did quite a bit of individual investing or uh, option uh, use of options in portfolios, and I oh, get, Jeff and, just picked up and and spent a few and spent a few uh, uh, years in the commodities industry, uh, and could could uh, could tell you some stories horror stories about uh, lessons learned there, but Please I think do. the. <laughs> I think I think the best way to answer that question right now would be um, uh, to say I, I think that some of the most valuable lessons have been the need to keep losses uh, to, to cut your losses soon. I think the biggest mistake that I find when I talk to a lot of investors, they all look back across the year and they say, you know, if it wasn't for those one or two or three big losses, they would have done pretty well. Many investors that are diligent will have a pretty would have a pretty good hit ratio. They tend to have 55, 60, 65% of their individual choices, securities, funds, et cetera, be successful. But boy, they're usually those one or two big losses that turn what could have been a good year into a bad year. And that usually happens because of uh, the lack of discipline uh, or the susceptibility to human nature that sort of hopes that that loss will, will stop. They begin to lose a rational view. Now, this doesn't mean that you always get out of every investment that goes to a loss, but you have to be more diligent about reassessing its value and make sure that you're properly valuing that investment. Because sometimes a dip in investment creates an opportunity. But the key there is, and I think that's one of the reasons that a lot of, a lot of skill-based managers and uh, in the hedge fund industry, in the commodities industry, et cetera, tend to, the, the ones that tend to be successful over time 
are the ones that are able to bring a, a, a rational discipline to investing, and they can suppress the human emotion that, that uh, has a tendency to, to, make, to make us play whack-a-mole with our portfolios. Yeah, I, would, I, I see that quite a bit where people you know, will hold on to their losses all the way to zero and, and, and sell their winners. And, and part of the reason is that it's so hard to hang on to the winners. And if you pull up a chart of, of some of the biggest winners of the past 20 years, Amazon, Netflix, whatever it may be, the fortitude to have sat through that investment with just multiple 40, 60, 80% losses is really, really hard um, in, in general. And so coming up with some sort of process, I think is really important. We've talked on it in the past. Look, buy and hold is a perfectly good solution, but but as is uh, using stop losses. We've had a bunch of people on the podcast say, "Look, I systematically slap on this stop loss on this on the, on all my uh, individual investment picks. It hits it, I sell it, and I move on." So it's it's kind of really finding out what works for you. Ed, it's been a blast today. We've had a really good time. Um, last question uh, before we go is is what are you most excited about or what, what, what are you thinking about these days in, in the, the woods of Oregon? Any research areas, any topics that you're kind of mulling around, kicking around your head, working on these days that uh, we can look forward to you writing about in the future? A couple of things that's starting to, to uh, you know, you've seen a recent couple of analyses about that I think you'll see more about is, uh, is the economy and uh, economic growth and the, the risks of economic growth to the market. I raised the issue in probable outcomes, but I think it's becoming more relevant now that we've had even more time, and that is the long-term average P.E. ratio and the range for high and low P.E. ratio is was in an environment of historically average growth, economic growth of just over 3% real growth. And I think everyone would agree that if you have a portfolio of high-growth stocks, that you would expect it to have a higher P-E ratio than a portfolio of low-growth stocks. If we're going forward into the future, likely to have a lower, a slower-growing economy than we had in the past, we're going to have slower growth in earnings. And if we have a next few decades of slower growth in earnings, we should expect that that effect alone is likely to lower the price-earnings ratio beyond whatever the inflation rate does. And that's not baked into the market right now. There's no recognition that I've seen that a slow-growth economy, which drives slower-growth earnings over time and would normally drive a lower average P-E ratio, is having any effect on current valuations. So to me, that's a vulnerability and something we should keep in mind. I think that probably gets recognized coming out of the next recession because for now, people are assuming a 2% growth economy, and we haven't had a recession in a long time. You take a 2% or 2.5% growth economy like we've had the last eight years, and you add in an occasional recession, and all of a sudden we're looking at a future of sub-2% growth. And that's a lot less than the three and change that we had historically. And, and so to me, that's a vulnerability, uh, uh, just to, to keep in mind, that, would, uh, that could potentially lower the return from stocks below that 4 5 6% that we talked about earlier. Let us know when you publish. We'll have you back on the podcast. Ed, um, it's been super fun. Where can listeners find uh, more information if they want to follow your work and uh, keep up to date? Sure. Uh, at uh, CrestmontResearch.com, it's an open access uh, website. There are no banner ads or uh, fees, uh, fee subscriptions. I uh, look forward to – there's a, 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 a page on the website where investors uh, or readers – 
can send questions uh, or comments. Those comments and questions often help generate additional research. There is on the website a, uh, a sign-up for notifications when there are updates. Uh, as a market climatologist, uh, I am not writing about this every week or month, but generally it's once or twice a quarter. And uh, investors can include their email. There's no fee for that, and, and that's not never used, never shared with anyone else, other than just notifications periodically of updates to the website. Uh, on the website, in the books and video section, you referenced it earlier, there is a video series that's based upon the book Unexpected Returns. It's a complimentary video series, and I think uh, there's a trailer, an eight-minute trailer there that a person could take a look at and see if they want to spend the time uh, listening to the video series. And then if they really... If they really get interested, there are always the books, and obviously Amazon has, has both books uh, if an investor or, or a listener would like to, uh, uh, to, to dig in even deeper. And by the way, we've we got to talk you into getting ebooks. Ed, do you not have ebook Kindle copies for either book? Well, let's see. Unexpected Returns actually went digital a few years ago. So uh, Unexpected Returns is available on, uh, on Kindle, uh, an ebook. So obviously it's beyond Kindle. Uh, Probable Outcome has, has not gone digital yet. But, uh, but unexpected returns is available that way. All right, summer project. I could care less because I'm a I'm a physical book guy. But but so many I know of my our readers now are are ebook converts. So uh, well, one, one, and just so you know, Matt, it, yep, one of the challenges in going ebook for the for both of, of uh, my books, uh, the, the books contain about uh, sixty to seventy five uh, color charts and graphs. That's one thing you'll find different about the unexpected returns and probable outcomes books is they are uh, they're printed in color. So that the graphs can be a bit, can be more um, uh, insightful in ebook format. That's a little more challenging to uh, to manage, and a lot of people's uh, e- uh, ebook readers are are, are monochrome. Uh, some are not, but but some are. And so the, the charts just they, they, they it, so, some of those charts just don't quite look the same in there when they're in black and white. Yeah, thanks for the chance to share those those uh, those things with the, with the uh, with the readers today. Yeah, just go download them off Ed's website and print them out and put them up on the wall. They're great. <laughs> Um, Ed, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Listeners, thanks for taking the time to tune in today. We always welcome feedback and questions at the mailbag at feedback at the As a reminder, you can always find the show notes. We'll post links to a lot of Ed's publications and other episodes at mebfaber.com forward slash podcasts. Subscribe to the show on iTunes. And if you're enjoying it, hating it, please leave a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.